Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird. I'm John, and today I'm joined by the Chisholm Creek, a tributary of the York River, which leads right into the Chesapeake Bay in Yorktown, Virginia. And it is beautiful out here. The sun has risen, and the water is pretty calm. The skies are clear, the birds are singing. And I'm currently observing an osprey mother feeding her one nestling, who's nearly fully grown, some fish and that's very appropriate because today i'll be talking with you guys about the osprey we're gonna have joe on the program here joe the my fiance's uh dad and the owner of this fine dock that i'm sitting on right now and he has observed uh ospreys nesting on the uh platform right by his dock for about 20 years and so he's seen a lot Now, if you live anywhere near a body of water, pretty much anywhere in the world except Antarctica, then you're going to be familiar with this bird. It's pretty prominent um, around coasts especially, and their nests are very prominent. They're often on, like, channel markers, or there's a lot of man-made platforms that they like to nest on. Uh, Sometimes you'll see their nests in, like, radio towers and and, uh, uh, electric poles or something like that they are also found along more inland like freshwater rivers and lakes so a little bit more rare i've noticed than uh than you see them out in the coast and this bird does go by a variety of more colloquial terms uh prominent along them is fish hawk for obvious reasons because it loves fish and it looks a lot like the hawks that we see so today i'll be exploring the just general description of the osprey, some cool facts about it. I'll talk about its evolutionary history, talk about its nest and breeding, its migration, and as always, wrap up with some myths and legends. So the osprey's scientific name is Pandion hyliatus. It has its own genus and family, which is pretty cool. It's the only bird of prey that specializes only in fish the way it does. And it has several adaptations that set it apart from like the red-tailed hawk you see or the bald eagle that specifically help it to specialize in its pescatarian diet. So it's in the genus Pandion, like I said, and in the family Pandionidae. 
there is kind of some uh, debate whether there's a split between Western and Eastern ospreys. Some sources list them as a subspecies, some as a full species. The Eastern osprey is in Australia, uh, Tasmania, the Philippines, Indonesia, New Guinea, and is only found in marine habitats, whereas it's argued the Western osprey is found in marine coastal habitats, habitats, but also up in freshwater streams and lakes. There are some kind of different morphological features that separate them a little bit. Uh, but this is a species that's widespread all over the world. So it's not surprising that there are some different subspecies and there's a little bit of different coloration on them. And it really is amazing that this bird has been able to spread throughout the world and be so successful uh, without having changed a ton. I mean, if you're in Australia and you're familiar with the ospreys over here in the States, then you're immediately going to be able to recognize it. And the, and the call is very similar, even though it's been separated by millions of years uh, over there, it hasn't totally adapted and changed. And I guess that shows just how successful their fishing strategies are. They don't, they don't really need to change. So their species name, Haliatus, that's Greek for fishing eagle. And while I said that they primarily, like 99% of the time, eat fish, they are known as an opportunistic forager. If they're hungry enough, they will eat carcasses that they find of birds, snakes, voles, squirrels, muskrats. I even saw an account where it was seen eating a salamander that it had found. But these are already dead carcasses that it finds. It doesn't actively hunt uh, these live, uh, as far as I could see. Fish, though, it loves a live, wriggling, yummy fish. And I have seen times where it seems to be trying to prey on uh, nestlings of other birds. I saw a red-winged blackbird chasing an osprey off from uh, its nesting colony. I don't know if the osprey was actually trying to steal uh, nestling from it or if the red-winged blackbird was just chasing off anything that got too close. The genus name, Pandion, was given to it based on Greek mythology. Pandion was a Greek mythological figure. He was the king of Athens. And his daughter, Procne, married Tereus, the king of Thrace. Tereus, though, was a pretty bad dude. Even though he married Procne for kind of the political connections, he desired Procne's sister, Philomela. And so he goes to Athens and tells Philomela that Procne had died and then asks Pandion for Philomela's hand in marriage since, you know, he already married one sister and she died, so can he get the other one in marriage? But of course, Procne was not dead. So Pandion agrees, and he sends Philomela with Tereus. Um, he sends guards with her, though, to kind of, you know, make sure everything's kosher back in Thrace with uh, his other daughter, you know, suddenly dying apparently so he sent some guards with her to keep her safe and to check on the situation 
Terius, though, kills the guards and throws them into the sea and then forces himself on Philomela and cuts out her tongue so she can't tell what happened. Philomela's unable to speak and she's being held captive by Terius, who just goes on ruling Thrace. But Philomela weaves a tapestry where she depicts Terius's crime and secretly sends it to her sister Procne. Procne sees the tapestry and finds out about Terius's deeds and is able to free her sister. They together plot in secret how to get revenge. And the way that they do this is there's a, a big feast and traditionally at this feast only the man of the household would eat and kind of be served by everyone else. So Procne and Philomela kill Terius's son and they cook him up in a dish and then feed him to Terius at the banquet. And after Terius is done eating it, he asks uh, Procne, uh, where's my son? And Philomela comes out with his head and flings it at Terius. And Terius is so angry that he goes to turn and try to kill Procne, but the Greek gods are kind of, you know, sitting back with popcorn watching all this happen. And finally, when this moment happens, they're like, all right, all right, now we're going to intervene. And so before Terius can kill Procne and Philomela, they intervene and turn all of them into birds. They turn Philomela into a swallow, Terius into a uh, hoopo I saw, or hawk um, also is, is listed that he was turned into. Not sure which one of those. And then Procne was turned into a nightingale. So the guy who named the genus Pandian for these ospreys didn't really know the story fully, I guess. Otherwise, he might have named them Terius Heliatus because, I mean, I guess Hawk goes more along with these ospreys. But I guess he had a cursory knowledge that, oh, there's some Greek mythology story where people get turned into birds. So, and Pandian, I remember that. So, yeah, let's throw that on the genus name. So, Pandian Heliatus. Uh, the Greek king of Athens, who's not turned into a bird, and then Haliatus for fishing eagle. So that's how the osprey gets its Latin name. Some general facts about the osprey. It's a distinctive large predatory bird, uh, like I said, found always near water. It has a barred tail, black eye stripe, and a crooked wing. It's very distinctive when you see it flying in the air, uh, not only for its call, but also because it kind of has crow-like fingers on the end of its wings. Its feathers kind of splay out similar to the way like a crow or a bald eagle's wings look. And then that tail has black bars on it, so it makes it very easy to spot. And usually if you see a large bird kind of circling, hovering over water, and especially if you see that bird then plunge down into it, it's probably an osprey. The osprey can plunge up to three feet in water, so it tends to try to hunt on large open bodies of water where fish will school up near the surface so it can dart in and grab them. It doesn't dive way down the way like a cormorant would or something like that, but it's amazing that it can go from flying high up in the air to diving down to then flying back up and catching a fish, and it always carries the fish head first for aerodynamic reasons and 
if you've uh, ever spent any time watching this bird, usually when you see ospreys, a bald eagle is not far behind. The bald eagles, as noble as they look and everything, are kind of <laughs> just glorified scavengers because they'll just wait for an osprey to do the hard work. The bald eagle can't plunge into the water the way the osprey does. It can really only grab from the surface. So if it sees an osprey dive in and catch a big fish, then the bald eagle will use its size to force the osprey to drop the fish and then snatch its meal. Often it'll snatch the fish before it, the, when the osprey drops it, often it'll snatch the fish before it even hits the water again. So it really blows my mind how ospreys are widespread throughout the world, but haven't differentiated into different species. You'd think living millions of years on separate continents, like you would, you'd become different. But that only happens if you're pushed to evolve based on environmental circumstances or changing climates. And the osprey is very just adaptable in general with its behaviors, and it's very successful in its uh, hunting strategy. So it really, wherever it goes, it kind of can use the same hunting strategy, the same kind of nest building, and it doesn't have to change. It doesn't, it isn't forced to evolve. So like I said, you can go from one continent to another and the ospreys are relatively similar, even though those populations haven't interacted in millions and millions of years. Part of this is the fact that they can hunt in both salt or fresh water. They're flexible in their migration. If they live at one of the low latitudes near the equator, they won't migrate. If they live at, to the far north or far south, then they will migrate during the winter. This fact that they migrate means that they're pretty strong flyers, and if there's no suitable nesting habitat or a water source dries up, then they're able to fly off and go look for more suitable habitat. And they're also a very flexible breeder. They build their, their large eagle-like nests of sticks wherever they can on dead trees, on man-made platforms a lot of times. Uh, they seem to love channel markers out here in the Chesapeake Bay. And they're very flexible with their nesting material too. They seem to prefer like dry sticks, like driftwood kind of sticks that they can carry, but they also will incorporate in a lot of things. And this can sometimes be detrimental to them. They'll incorporate in fishing lines sometimes, which will then get wrapped around a leg or wrapped around the neck of one of their young and um, be detrimental to their health. So let's talk about, oh, the mom just finished feeding the young one. And the young one, I guess he's potty trained because <laughs> he walked over to the edge of the nest, stuck his butt out, and then shit in the water, <laughs> which is kind of funny to watch. But I guess you don't want to shit in your nest, so that's, hey, good on him. Good job, Mom. You totally trained your little osprey babe. So let's talk a little bit about some osprey evolution. So I mentioned how these guys are in their own family, which means that they kind of broke off from a lot of other birds of prey a long time ago and went down their specializing in fishing route. So they're related to other hawks, owls, eagles in the order 
acept forms. These are diurnal birds of prey. Uh, of note here, falcons are not in this order. They have a different evolutionary history, which I'll cover when I do a falcon species sometime. One zoom tree of life has the first osprey ancestor splitting off from other raptors about 49.6 million years ago. So that's kind of when uh, the ancient ancestors started trying to, I guess, specialize in, in just fish uh, while, you know, letting the other hawks and kites and everything eat their rodents and snakes and whatever else they like. And we do have some fossils of ancient osprey ancestors that tell us a little bit about the evolutionary history of this bird. The oldest osprey specimen is dated at about 13 million years ago during the Miocene period, and it's called Pandion homolopteran, and it was found in California. Another one, Pandion lavensis, was found in Florida and dated at about 9 million years ago. These are primitive ospreys when you look at their bone structure. They look more hawk-like in the way that their legs are, and also their talons, they look a lot more like hawk talons. The osprey is remarkably adapted with its talons. They're very curved. Um, they almost look like hooks to hook into slippery fish. And based on finding these ancient fossils in California, in Florida, it's probable that ospreys evolved in the New World and then were able to spread out to the rest of the world from there. There have been osprey fossils found in Egypt and Germany um, that are pretty old too, not, not as old as uh, the ones found in America. Um, interestingly though, there have been no fossils yet found in Australia. And the proposed route of colonization is from America. The ospreys colonized um, Indo-Australia regions of the Pacific and then rapidly expanded there to Eastern Asia, the Western Palearctic. Um, interesting though, in this spread, it seems like Japan was colonized after Russia, even though they kind of went to like Indonesia, Australia from America first over the Pacific. Uh, they then kind of went up to mainland Asia and just skipped out on Japan for a little bit until uh, I guess an osprey circled back and was like, oh, hey, there's fish here too. And you can definitely envision how these birds could easily spread across the world because it would be very easy for them to island hop because when they get to an island, there's a ready source of food already there with the fish in the coastal waters. And really all they need is a place to kind of build their nest or to hang out and rest before they go and uh, fly again. There's four subspecies of the osprey that seem to have diverged in the past one to two million years. The Carolinensis is the osprey of North America. The Ridgeway is the osprey of the Caribbean. Um, Haliatus is the one of Europe. And then Cristatus is the Eastern osprey of Australia, uh, Tasmania, the one that I said some people consider a different species. There's also some distinct populations on the Canary Islands, Cape Verde, and in the Red Sea. Uh, even though they have the ability to really 
spread and migrate. If they kind of find an area they like, you know, they'll they'll stick there and they won't. Uh, especially if they don't have to migrate, they won't really move much, and they'll kind of become a distinctive uh, subspecies population, passing on certain morphological characteristics. Maybe some differing calls too. So the osprey has several adaptations it's evolved that really help it become an expert in hunting fish. Uh, in my National Geographic book here, it underneath the picture of the osprey, it says, The Sharp-Eyed Ospreys and Isaac Walton on Wings. And I had to look up who <laughs> Isaac Walton is. He's some uh, English poet and uh, famous angler. I guess kind of he like helped introduce like fishing to the gentry in England or something like that. But uh, so I didn't really get that reference, had to look it up. But I mean, they are, they're expert fishermen. I mean, this is millions of years of evolution that have made them the king of, uh, king of fishing um, in the bird world, I'd say. Uh, maybe the kingfisher too, but I mean, he only eats little minnows. This dude's, you know, the ospreys are picking up fish that are a couple pounds. So ospreys can rotate their fourth toe around in order to pinch slippery fish better. The only other raptor that can do this is owls, but this adaptation evolves separately in ospreys and owls. They also are able to close their nostrils when they plunge into the water. And that dark band under their eyes is similar to the face paint like a football player would put on before a game. It helps reduce the glare that uh, they see on the water so that they're better able to see the fish. Their talons are really cool when you look at them up close. They have these sharp little spicule needles on them that point back kind of like the barb on a fish hook. And the very scales on their feet too have little barbs. If you, if you look at them up close, it almost looks like the surface of a pineapple, how it kind of has those little like bulbs with spikes on the end. So when they grab a fish it's not just their talons digging in it's the very like skin of their uh of their feet they have a very dense oily plumage to prevent it getting waterlogged when they dive into the water this oil comes from the uropygeal gland which all birds have it but water birds especially produce this gland uh, they use it to, it produces oil and they kind of use it to preen and cover oil all over their feathers. Interestingly, I was looking at a study that, you know, where they dissected the uropygial gland on the osprey and compared it to other birds, and it appeared most similar to pigeons. Uh, but it showed a higher level of lipid producing cells, which makes sense. Uh, the osprey is going to need this oil way more than a pigeon is. It really is amazing to watch these birds. Right before I sat down, the osprey uh, dad, I think, um, plunged down right in front of me and caught a fish, which he then brought over for the mother to feed to the young. And they dive all the way down in the water, and then they pop back up, and they kind of float there for a second and kind of shake their wings out. And then they'll take off. And it's really cool that they're able to fly immediately after plunging into the water like that. Sometimes they will grab a fish that's a little too big for them, though. And I have seen this where 
uh, and Osprey plunges in, grabs a fish, and he's kind of like hanging out there on the surface trying to take off and is having a really hard time. The one that I saw was able to finally get airborne but didn't go very far, kind of flew over to a dock to try to start, I guess, eating some of the fish and make it a little lighter. Uh, there are accounts, though, that ospreys will go after a fish that's too big. I saw in the uh, yeah in my National Geographic book here, it says, Occasionally, ospreys are known to strike fish too large for them to handle, and when their claws become caught, the birds are pulled beneath the surface and drowned. Instances have been recorded where a drowned osprey, with its claws locked in the back of a dead salmon or sturgeon, has washed up on shore, affording mute evidence of such a tragedy. And, and that's pretty sad to see, but I guess, you know, don't catch more than you can fly is the moral of the story there. It kind of reminds me of, if you've listened to our Iceland episode, there's a story in there about uh, sea eagles uh, grabbing fish that are too big and being kind of dragged in. Of note here in this National Geographic book, he says... Uh, in summer on Chesapeake Bay, I've seen fish hawks feeding regularly on eels. I can't say I've ever seen an osprey with an eel. They seem to always just have fish, but I'm sure that's kind of a crazy thing to see, a wriggly eel and an osprey carrying it. There's definitely a ton of eels in here, that's for sure. Well, as I watch this mom and little one over here eating the last little bits of fish, let's go ahead and talk about some osprey breeding. So, except for Florida, ospreys throughout the U.S. are migratory, and they'll, the male will usually arrive first for migration, and upon arriving to the breeding grounds in like March, April, it will begin either repairing an old nest or making a new one. And then the female will come and, uh, and join him. The male generally collects the nesting material while the female builds the nest, and they will perform courtship displays to each other. Uh, they'll do one where they circle high up in the air. The male may also dive while carrying a fish or carrying a stick, kind of show her his prowess. And this is probably really important for the male to prove that he can catch fish because from what I've observed, uh, um, once the eggs are hatched, it's really the female that hangs out with the, the young ones and the male does most of the hunting. They will switch off and the, and the female will go off hunting. Uh, for fish too, but really it seems like the male's the fish winner, and so he's got to be able to support uh, these birds because they eat a ton of fish, and especially the young ones when they're growing up, they're constantly hungry. Um, as far as the mating of these guys, uh, I saw that one study showed that they copulated 160 times during a breeding season, but only about 40% of those resulted in cloacal contact, you know, their dirty bird parts touching. They'll lay eggs in their nest uh, after all damage from frost has passed. Usually they lay about two to three eggs, rarely they'll lay about four. These eggs are said to be some of the prettiest in the bird world. They're uh, nice big eggs. They have flecked with like lavender or brown. The incubation is done almost entirely by the female for about 35 to 40 days. And then uh, the male will feed her while she's on the nest. So really important that that male knows how to catch some fish. And 35 to 40 days, man, that is a long time to sit on some eggs. 
the nestling period is 50 to 55 days. So they spend a long time raising their young. The young are covered in down. They're kind of like these gray little down-colored babies upon hatching. And even after they finally fledge and can fly, they're still dependent on their parents for up to six weeks. So this is a very long-term investment. And they only do one brood per year if they lose all their young or any, something like that. You know, they're, they're done for that breeding season. It's, it's really an investment uh, by these birds. The most common causes of their nest failing is usually food shortage. And when there's a food shortage, the female will abandon the nest. They also might abandon due to real bad weather. Their nest can be damaged in hurricanes or high water. There's also some predators, common ravens, great horned owls, but raccoons are the big ones. A raccoon stealing from the nest, eating its babies, is probably the biggest threat that ospreys have. And that's why they like to build out on the water, on platforms, on channel markers, on a dead tree overhanging in the water, because no raccoon's going to swim out there. Sibling aggression is also a major cause of brood reduction. Uh, Joe's witnessed that with uh, his ospreys here. Usually one will kind of become dominant, and the parents will preferentially feed the dominant, stronger sibling, and then eventually that sibling will push whoever remains out of the nest. Really, the food competition is huge with these guys. So they can't afford to be feeding multiple mouths, and if the young one wants to grow up and be able to leave the nest, he can't afford to be able to compete with uh, his brothers and sisters. I did see a weird case in Baja, California, where an osprey was defending its nest from two common ravens, and I don't know if it was just overstressed or something like that, but it picked up its nestling, carried it into the air, and then dropped it into the water. It was a young, young one still kind of covered in its uh, gray down feathers and stuff. It was just one in the nest. And the researchers thought maybe it was just trying to get rid of that one because it considered it, uh, you know, gone because the ravens had attacked it and was just trying to get rid of it so that it could then start a new nest or then just focus on itself and didn't want to try to invest in a in young that was just going to die. But really, really weird case. Ospreys may also abandon nests in response to human activity, which I found surprising because I've always viewed these as very human-tolerant birds. I mean, in the Chesapeake Bay when we're boating, you pass by their nests all the time, and I mean, they, they'll get a little mean at you. They'll, they'll squawk at you and, and look really mean at you and spread their wings, but, you know, we just figure they're pretty used to humans, and typically the ones that we see are. Uh, they are adaptable, and they will get used to human presence. But if it's one that is, you know, out on a creek where there's no houses and no one really boats, and someone comes roaring through there on their boat or gets too close to the nest on a paddleboard or something, if they're not used to humans, they'll take that as a huge threat, and they may abandon the nest. It takes about three years for an osprey to become sexually mature and breeding. It will build nests before then as kind of like a, a prepping or practicing, but it's, it takes about three years for it fully to be ready to uh, make a family. The one-year-old usually will migrate down and not return to the U.S. And then in their second year, uh, about 28 to 55% of them will return 
And then by age three, nearly all of them will return. I said it took about three years for them to reach sexual maturity. So if they migrate down to, you know, the Bahamas or something like that in their first, like, two years, they aren't even sexually mature. So why are they going to go back up to where it's cold anyway? And most of them do return within 30 kilometers of where they hatched, but sometimes they will move more farther out. Um, the females tend to disperse more than the males do. The males will kind of go right around where they were born and raised and everything, but the females uh, tend to go to some new different areas and, you know, mix up the gene pool a little bit. So that's a little bit about their breeding there. Uh, also, a really cool thing with their nest, too, they're, they're large... Um, build of sticks and other birds will take advantage of this too uh, sometimes larger birds that uh, like nests like that like hawks great horned owls ravens will steal the nest from the ospreys usually by taking the nest over before the ospreys show uh, back up from migration but also smaller birds that are cavity nesters like tree swallows will uh, build their own nest kind of inside of the osprey nest. And uh, I've read reports that the ospreys will continue on with their nests and seemingly not even care that, you know, there's a small little bird that has its own nest within their nest. So they're kind of providing habitat for other birds too, which is really cool. Well, let me go ahead and have Joe on to talk about the ospreys nesting off of his dock and his observations over the years. He's got some great stories. You think I can maybe get you to tell some of your osprey stories? Sure. For this? Let me bring the mic over so we can hear. Uh, yeah, the ospreys brought a fish over earlier. I got them, I recorded them while they were feeding it and everything. Uh -huh. The little one was good. Have you played it back to him? <laughs> no, I haven't. That would probably trip him out. That'd be funny. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and she's over there diligently watching. Oh, that's him. Yeah. She's in the tree. Yeah, she's up in the tree, yeah. Because he's been sitting uh, there. Every once in a while, I'll see him dive out of that tree and catch a fish. Okay. Oh, there he goes. Oh, yeah. Time to go hunting. They almost always go that way. And they, I'm pretty sure they go over to the Drum Island Flats where the water's clear. Oh, okay. When you go over there, uh, you'll see a lot of osprey. Now, this guy, he's, he's taking a uh, different route. He looks like he's going over to the York River. Nope, now he's straightening out. Because the water's clear over there? Yeah, so they can see him better. Mm -hmm. Well, it I, seems today's I, like I a good a day for it here. Nice and flat. Yeah, we didn't we didn't get a lot of rain. You know, even though it was like raining all day yesterday, we didn't really get a lot. Huh. Well, I'm sitting here with Joe McClure, future father-in-law, and <laughs> avid uh, waterman, and uh, has been living here on the Chisholm Creek and observing lots of the fish and birds and wildlife in general, especially a uh, osprey nest which is right off of your dock there and has that been here since y'all moved in i uh i uh i put it up there that's where the old dock used to be oh so we left one of the piles and i just put down some plywood and uh there you got it it's a it's a huge nest it's as big as nest as you'll find as an osprey makes around here 
And every few years I have to knock it down because it gets too big and I worry about it. And so I check to make sure that it's secure and they rebuild it immediately. Did they build it the very when you put it up the very first year that you put the platform up? Did they uh, yeah. come and start building? They they tried to build it on top of the tiki hut and on top <laughs> of the boat. So so uh, I was having a dilemma. Uh, they kept messing up the boat and the tiki hut, and so um, I built them an osprey nest. Nice. Yeah, and you've had. I mean, they've. So that's that's been what like. That's been there about uh, twenty years, maybe no. At least twenty years. Wow, I've been here twenty-five. Wow, that's so awesome. I've seen a lot of ospreys, and it's not the same ones do not come and go to the same nest. Uh, it's definitely whoever gets there first and defends it huh. uh, uses the nest. And there's good ospreys and bad osprey. <laughs> and uh, this year we have a bad mother, but she would be a good mother. But I don't like her because she squawks too much. <laughs> <laughs> when she's laying on her eggs. Now that she's the chick is is hatched, there was two. Uh, they always usually throw out one, maybe two. Yeah. I've seen as many as three. Uh, I've seen it where they kick them out and I put them back in there. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I piss them off too. Uh, but uh, it's all good. It's a two-way street there. <laughs> but yeah, this one, uh, this is probably the most aggressive one I've I've ever seen when she was laying on her eggs. She was attacking... The yeah, great blue heron came by. She swooped at him. The geese she was going at. Uh, the cormorants. Yeah, the they're cormorants. sitting over here on a pole, bothering no one, and she goes over there and like <laughs> harasses them. She harasses everything, including the people walking down the dock. Yeah, that's yeah. why I said there's good osprey and bad osprey. She's a bad one. Yeah, I remember the year before the osprey couple that was there. They were real chill. They yeah yeah. Well, she will be too. Even if you have a crowd down here, yeah. eventually she just gives up and lays on her egg and shuts up. <laughs> so she gets around. She comes around eventually. But you got some pretty incredible stories about uh, the ospreys over mm-hmm. the year years living on the property here. Uh, what about that one? that you uh, saved and fed fish to for a while till you got it straight. Oh, yeah, so um, <laughs> I, I, I thought it was a black snake. I saw all the birds uh, bob diving over here on the point underneath a, a large pine tree. And I, I, I got curious, so I said, I'll go see the snake. I figured for sure it's a black snake. And I got over there, and it was an osprey. Now, it's hard to tell their age because they, once they can fly, they kind of look just like their parents. Uh, so at any rate, um, this guy looked like he was on death's door. He was just laying there and not doing so well. So I picked him up and uh, put him in the shade and um, fed him some minnows. And so that went on pretty much all day. I had a, I had a, a business meeting I had to go to, and I came back and... Uh, uh, the bird started perking up, and he was still—he was on my lawn tractor in the shade, and uh, and so we wanted to move him uh, because he was still getting a little bit harassed by the birds, and so we were going to move him on a back porch, a screened-in back porch, which we don't have anymore. But uh, uh, so I put this osprey on my arm, and his talons went all the way around my wrist and still stuck out. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, an, another half yeah. inch or so. So it was, it was kind of uh, scary, but it was kind of fun. 
Yeah, um, that's you know, incredible. Yeah, it's not like the I was afraid of this osprey. It looked like it just wanted some help, and so I fed it. Uh, I fed it minnows. I had uh, gudgeons uh, that I had caught in my minnow trap, mm-hmm. and so I, I fed him. I don't know how many gudgeons. It probably at least fifty, and. Um, the next morning, he perked up, and I opened the door, and off he went. Wow. So uh, <laughs> he survived. That's awesome. Yeah, there's been, you talk, talked about how you'll see where the either the ospreys will get pushed out or fall out of the nest, and sometimes yeah. you'll pick them up and put them back. Wasn't there a time there were like three of them or a bunch of them all I the- did three in one day, but uh, to be honest, uh, one of them was uh, me <laughs> throwing a bird in and knocking another bird out <laughs> so, so, oh, God. but uh he, he he'd swam across he had fallen into the water don't know how but it was a it was one of two chicks and they were big and he swam all the way across he swam a hundred yards to the other side wow yeah just to kind of set up what this looks like here um it's a uh, the Chisholm Creek is off of the York River and uh where we're at right now, it's pretty wide. It's it's got to be yeah, hundred yards across, hundred fifty. Um, uh, yeah. Salt water. There's houses and docks lining each side. Also, good amount of uh, pine trees. Um, what are those? Uh, loblolly. Yes, they yeah. Are. Loblolly pines, kind of lining it and everything. Always bunch of fish jumping and everything. Mm. But yeah, that's a pretty long distance for a little yeah. baby bird to swim across. Well, not only that, um, there are those uh, tall yellow pines across at six and a half acres over there. Which uh-huh. so when you say uh, lined by houses, except over there because that's where the eagle nest is. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so we do have an eagle nest uh, across the creek from us, and that's going to be interesting too. If you have ever watched eagles and ospreys interact. Oh, yeah. You should see the way uh, Eagle can fly upside down and still look scary. Wow. Yeah, ospreys, that's like their arch nemesis there is the bald mm. eagles. And we see it every day here. Yep. Almost every day. And, and yeah, so at any rate, I'd get in a, a, small, a small skiff-type boat and went over and got the osprey and brought him back. And then I threw him up in the nest, and, and the other one fell out i don't know if i did it or he just jumped out but at any rate so i had to get that one too and then um uh uh, the day earlier i think it was at the same day i I can't remember at any rate uh it seems like when they come out of the nest they all do it at about the same time Mm -hmm. but i was mowing the grass and i looked down and there's an osprey uh, laying in the grass i'm like um not in the short grass but in the tall grass. yeah yeah and so i was like going god it's like you know, because it's a real pain in the butt. So, uh, once again, getting back in the boat, go throw him back up in the nest. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. It's all, I know it's uh, always uh, nice for you guys, kind of watching the uh, families over the years and everything. When when would you say that the uh, ospreys leave in the fall and kind of return? That in the is hard to say because you can't tell which ones are what. I can tell you this, that on uh, St. Paddy's Day is about when they arrive. Okay. So you're looking uh, between the second and third week in March. It used to be St. Paddy's Day. It was, it was, you were going to see an osprey for sure. Uh, but it, as uh, I think over the years, they've gotten here another week earlier. And of yeah. course, um, there's a lot of competition for the uh, available nests. Mm-hmm. I, I've never seen an osprey ever 
make a nest in the wild. I, I think one time. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw it at a lake in an old tree. Yep. But um, none of them around here do that. None yeah. of them have built. I've never seen an osprey build a nest in anything but a man-made structure. Yep. I think that probably has to do with the raccoons because what I was reading is that the um, raccoons are like their biggest nest predator and so they try to build whatever they can where the raccoons can't reach them and stuff. Well, uh, on an isolated pole out in the middle of the river is a yeah. good spot. <laughs> um, yeah, but there's fewer this year. If you can look over this way, there's an empty nest over here. Oh, yeah. And that used to have this nest. one's empty as well. Huh. And I think uh, instead of having four nests within uh, a quarter mile, we only have one this year. Wow. So that's a little different. Yeah, that is different, huh? And uh, how how the nests, you know, the families usually do when they're here? Because I think, what was it, like two years ago they lost all their chicks or something like that? You guys came out here one day and just they were all the yeah, chicks were gone? Yeah, that, that happens very seldom. I've only seen it once uh, that whatever reason the chick died or something got it or whatever mm -hmm. um they don't start over um it's over for them i i think they only have a finite amount of time yeah and you asked also about when they leave and it's definitely um they don't all leave at one time like they get here mm -hmm. they leave sporadically and um they use the nest as a feeding station after they fledged so the nest is still used but not for sleeping, not for anything, but uh, feeding. Gotcha. Yeah, they'll, like, bring a fish back. and Yeah. And the the young one, have you noticed, like, after it can fly and leave the nest, it sticks around with the parents for a little bit? or uh, It does. Yeah. Uh, it does. Um, it, it appears, uh, like, all the way to that fall. And then, I don't know. I don't know where they go or yeah. what happens. Yeah, I'm assuming they have learned how to catch fish by then. <laughs> you would hope so. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's it's amazing to watch ospreys fly. Um, they're one bird that I've seen that loves to fly, and on a nice breezy day, they will do some very interesting maneuvers uh, with the way they flutter and fly and dive. I've seen him spiral down like you wouldn't believe, and I'm like, well, what is he doing? And he's not fishing. He's not doing anything but having fun. And it's amazing to watch these ospreys on a, on a nice, kind of windy day, how they can hover and climb and dip and dive. And they do this whoopty thing uh, sometimes when they have a fish to show off to the mate. Like, look what I have. Oh, wow. Kind of like the shiny object. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> incredible to watch it uh, because there's absolutely no reason why... Uh, a bird would spend that much energy showing another bird what it has, especially when there's two eagles across the creek. Yeah, yeah. And those eagles, they have those fledglings too, so there's actually four eagles over there. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think I heard them a little bit earlier this morning chirping, but haven't seen well, any no, sign of them. They're not over there right now. They, they normally perch in the exact same place. In that pine, yeah. the yellow pine, yep. Wow. Anything else uh, you can think of from your osprey interactions over the years? Um, they all talk, seem to talk to each other. They have a specific call every time they see another osprey. Huh. And I don't know what it is they're saying, obviously. <laughs> uh, I don't speak osprey. But they do interact 
with every osprey that goes over. Gotcha. Yeah, kind of like... It's like, hello, hey, I'm an osprey too. Yeah, Yeah. this is my territory. (laughs) Yeah. Or just saying, hey. Yeah. I, I don't know. But they all interact. Well, awesome. Well, thank you, Joe, being kind of a amateur expert on the Ospreys here after 20 plus years of observing them. Uh, really appreciate you. Oh. Blue Aaron. Yeah, great Blue Aaron. He's <laughs> a good closer. Yeah, seriously. Well, thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure being here. Actually, it's my house, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pleasure letting me use your dock to record. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, we're good. All right. Let's eat some clams. <laughs> yeah, let's eat some clams. That was great. I love hearing Joe tell the story about that osprey that he fed the minnows to until it was strong enough and just went on. Uh I can see why the other birds were so pissed at it. I mean, I had seen that red-winged blackbird chase off an osprey before. And even though they're not really known as nest predators, I think uh, songbirds are kind of just want to be cautious with an osprey around. I mean, they certainly look scary. I wouldn't want them near my little young. Interestingly, too, ospreys can be pretty territorial about their nests. Uh, I said they can be pretty calm with humans getting close to them, but... The moment a human gets anywhere near like it's going to steal from the nest, the ospreys can get very vicious. I have a story here from Alexander Wilson, which you folks might remember from our Big Peckers uh, episode on the ivory-billed woodpecker. He's the one that went and brought an ivory build into his hotel room, and it proceeded to destroy the place. So in this story, Alexander Wilson wants a little baby osprey. And so he asks two guys to go climb a nest to get him one. I guess he's smart enough to not go climb it himself. Uh, They find a nest, and there's three young ones in it, um, unable to fly, though fully fledged, which is kind of what our guy is in there. He... uh, the baby in the nest right now, he's got the markings of an adult. He's starting to get pretty big, but uh, still can't fly yet. Interestingly, that there were three of those, because those are pretty far along developed. I guess maybe all three of them were of equal strength. No one was able to jostle anyone else out of the nest yet. But they say as they get close to the nest, the parents fly off and perch in a tree, which is what they, what they usually do. They'll kind of squawk at you, and then they go fly off in a tree and look at you. So he says, uh, I approached the nest as a defense, profiting by the experience of yesterday. He had gone to the nest before and had kind of been attacked. I took a walking stick with me. When I was about half up the tree, the bird I send you struck at me repeatedly with violence. He flew round in a small circle, darting at me at every circuit and I striking at him. Observing that he always described a circle in the air before he came at me, I kept a hawk's eye upon him. Oh, God, he thinks he's so funny with that. And the moment he passed me, I availed myself of the opportunity to ascend. When immediately under the nest, I hesitated at the formidable opposition I met, as his rage appeared to increase with my presumption in invading his premises. Yeah, dude, you're trying to steal its young. But I mounted to the nest. At that moment, he darted directly at me with all his force, whizzing through the air. His collar apparently redoubled. Fortunately for me, I struck him on the extreme joint of the right wing with my stick, which brought him to the ground. During this contest, the female was flying round and round at a respectful distance. 
Captain H held him till I tied my handkerchief about his legs. The captain felt the effect of his claws. <laughs> I brought away a young one to keep the old one in good, a good humor. I put them in a very large coop. The young one ate some fish when broken and put into its throat, but the old one would not eat for two days. He continued sullen and obstinate, hardly changing his position. Dude, yes, you hit him on the wing with a stick and then stole him away from his honey. He walks about now and is approached without danger. He takes very little notice of the young one. A Joseph Smith working in the field where this nest is had the curiosity to go up and look at the eggs. The bird clawed his face in a shocking manner. His eye had a narrow escape. He deserved it. I am told it has never been considered dangerous to approach a hawk's nest. If this be so, this bird's character is peculiar. His affection for his young, his valiant opposition to an invasion of his nest, entitle him to conspicuous notice. He is the prince of fishhawks. His character and his portrait seem worthy of being handed to the historic muse. A hawk more worthy of the honor which awaits him could not have been found. I hope no accident will happen to him, and that he may fully answer your purpose. And then he also notes, This morning the female is flying to and fro, making mournful noise. And that's uh, from... Le the letters of Alexander Wilson. God, that's a terrible story. <laughs> oh, I feel so bad for those ospreys. And I mean, I guess they were trying to research them and draw them and everything. But God, they did some terrible things to animals in the pursuit of science, I guess. Uh, we can probably learn some lessons from that today. So major causes of death in ospreys, it seems to be impact injuries and starvation being some of the biggest ones. Um, I saw some accounts in the 1960s where they found ospreys with gunshot wounds. Hopefully people aren't still doing that. Uh, also respiratory infections uh, will take down ospreys too. Respiratory infections are kind of a common thing in the bird world and so that's probably one of the main illnesses that'll take them down. They have low parasite burdens overall, probably those really oily feathers and being in the salt air. And I mean, they're taking a lot of bird baths too, plunging into the water uh, helps to keep the parasite burden down. They do get parasites from the fish that they eat. There's been parasites found within their digestive systems, systems that are common to other fish-eating birds, such as anhingas, blue herons, bald eagles. They do have feather parasites too, though, even with their oily feathers and their frequent bird bass. I did see a really cool case in the Canary Islands where there's a species of lizard there that is, was observed climbing on the adults and the chicks also and then eating louse flies off of them. So they were kind of getting a free little uh, parasite bath by these lizards, uh, which was awesome. If You can look up pictures of it. It's pretty cool to see. They are very prone to pollutants because they're these apex predators, kind of top of the food chain. So they'll collect large concentrations of toxins. DDT was really big in this uh, back in the 80s when uh, controversy over uh, DDT was happening. It really affected their eggs. They had really weak eggshells um, and also hurt the adults too. A couple cool osprey facts here. Um, in Venezuela, I saw an account where an osprey was observed carrying a stingray. Pretty cool. Uh, birds often have a dominant foot the same way we have a dominant hand. Um, and ospreys will prefer one foot over the other um, when they're carrying a fish, uh, one foot to be in the front. And usually that's the left foot, so they're left-footed.
I saw in uh, Massachusetts a female osprey was tagged, and in 2008 she flew 3,000 miles on her migratory route to Venezuela. And it's thought that migratory ospreys can log up to 160,000 air miles in their lifetime. So these guys really are pretty strong flyers, and it's no surprise that they were able to spread across the Pacific from America to colonize the rest of the world. The oldest osprey was banded in 1973 in Virginia and lived to at least 25 years old. I saw that beavers may be important for creating inland osprey habitat. They'll dam a stream, create a lake, and then ospreys are able to fish and uh, build their nests there. So let's go ahead and wrap up here with some osprey myths and folklore. It's a very prominent bird throughout the world, so it features into a lot of different legends and myths and uh, pop culture, too. Um, Shakespeare and his tragedy, Coriolanus, um, which is about a disgraced Roman general trying to retake uh, Rome. Uh, there's a line in there that says, I think he'll be on Rome, as is the osprey to the fish. There's the Bell Boeing V-22 osprey, which you may have seen. It's the aircraft that can kind of go from helicopter to airplane by moving its rotary propellers. Uh, it was made in response to the Iran hostage crisis and meant to combine being able to take off and land like a helicopter with being able to cruise long range like a prop aircraft. It's called the Osprey because it was kind of like a joint Air Force, uh, Navy uh, venture there. There is a lot of controversy over it due to it going over budget accidents and then kind of covers ups of said budgets and accidents. In Europe, the osprey was thought to enchant and hypnotize fish in order to catch them. It was said that the fish would turn their bellies up and surrender to the osprey. It was thought that if you killed an osprey, it would cause the mackerel and herring to disappear during that season. So no one would really kill an osprey based on that superstition. I think that's good. I think we need to make more superstitions about harming birds or har harming the environment in general so that we don't do it. The Ute and Pueblo people knew the osprey as the water eagle, and if they saw the osprey coming up into the streams, then they knew that the, there were fish in the streams and that it was time to fish. To most other tribes, uh, we see it referred to as the fish hawk, um, at least in the translations that were given. There's a tale by the Ochama tribe. They're centered around the Pitt River in northeastern California, and they tell a tale that in winter, the son would leave his daughter at home, but carry her with him in the summertime. The son wanted his daughter to marry a great suitor like Pine Martin, Wolf, or Coyote. Fishhawk was mad that the son was looking down upon other suitors and only wanted her to marry, you know, the top wolf or the top coyote and look down upon, I guess, the other animal suitors. So in winter, he snuck to the sun's sweat lodge in the ocean. Um, this tribe is on the west coast, so, you know, they would see the sun set in the ocean, so they assumed that's where its home was. Fishhawk found the sun's daughter in a basket and took her and then hid her in muddy water in the pit river so the sun couldn't find it. The sun awoke and couldn't find his daughter and so was freaking out, and he hired all the animal spirits uh, to um, 
go and search for his daughter. So first he hired all the uh, animals of the ground, the you know bears and mice and everything to go search the ground and they couldn't find the daughter. Then he hired all of the animals of the air, the birds, uh, insects uh, to go look and they couldn't find her in the air. So then he hires uh, all the animals to search the water. Um, I assume the fish to search and everything and everyone's searching. The kingfisher though is the last one searching um, and comes to the muddy part of the pit river and thinks he sees something. The kingfisher fills his pipe, smokes, and then blows the smoke on the water to make it clear. Um, he then takes a long pole and probes it deep in until he gets a hold of the basket and pulls the basket out. The son rejoiced to have his daughter back and paid all that he had hired in shells. He was so happy to have his daughter back that he didn't even harm the fish hawk. So it's got a happy ending. Um, and I like this story too because it kind of contrasts the um, kingfisher and the osprey. They're both like associated with the water and hunting the water. Um, I guess maybe the kingfisher is given a little bit like more of a keener eye uh, probably because he uh, hunts for smaller little minnows compared to the osprey hunting for big fish. Uh, but I thought that was kind of a cool part of it. So this other legend I have is a Mick from the Micmac tribe, which um, they're up in uh, kind of eastern Canada, Maine. This is called the Fishhawk and the Scapegrace. Uh, scapegrace is a gull. I also have seen it called the Fishhawk and the Cormorant, where the Cormorant features in this. Really, the essential parts of the story are the same. Both versions, the high-flying noble osprey is contrasted with the low-flying slow gull or Cormorant. The osprey will only yield to the eagle, and in Native American mythology, the bald eagle is like uh, representative of like a chieftain, uh, while the cormorant gull will be submissive to multiple birds. Also, the osprey only uh, eats fresh fish and feeds its young fresh fish, while cormorants will kind of regurgitate fish up for their young. And then the gull, you know, they'll eat anything, so they're kind of seen as uh, unclean with their food. So in this story, uh, we're going to go with the gull uh, being in this story instead of the cormorant. Sorry, cormorant. But anyway, in this story, the fishhawk and the scapegrace meet and they talk. The scapegrace wants a partnership. The osprey will get any fish they catch, and the scapegrace will get everything else. Now, this sounds like a bad deal because, I mean, the gull will eat anything. So, I mean, how much and how much fish is the gull going to catch? Like, none. So uh, the osprey knows this, and but he agrees to it and says, all right, well, let's fly to a new village and see how our partnership works out. So the, the fish hawk and the gull start flying towards a village, and the osprey quickly gets ahead of the gull and gets to the village first. And he kind of warns the villagers, hey, like, there's a guy coming, and, uh, you know, you won't really like him. He'll offer you food. Don't eat it. It's disgusting. It'll poison you. And the osprey is treated with great reverence by the people in this village. They throw him a banquet and everything like that, and then he leaves. And then the gull shows up, and um, I like in the story it says, he was treated like filth and fine clothes. So they kind of do all the trappings of, I mean, it's a guest in their village. So, you know, they have a banquet, um, but they don't eat any of the food that the gull offers them. And uh, the gull inquires about uh, any marriageable daughters and you know the chief dually kind of introduces him to the eligible women to marry but you know they all snub him and uh, are kind of rude to him so then the gull leaves um, and the osprey comes back and asks the villagers hey like what what happened did the gull come yes did uh you eat any of his food no you told us not to and so the osprey is kind of pleased that they listened to his uh 
warnings. And so he tells them that uh, in the future something bad will happen, um, but he's going to warn them about it. And when they see him flying overhead, uh, you know, they need to take it as a warning, and he'll warn them that something bad will happen. So one day this guy, um, Oskun, which uh, translates to liver from what I could see. So liver sees the fish hawk uh, flying overhead. So he kind of knows something bad's going to happen. And the fish hawk comes down and tells him that kukwes are coming to attack the village in seven days. Now, kukwes are like basically the uh, Native American ogre, kind of a cool mythological creature. Look it up. So liver is like, oh, seven days. Like that's plenty of time for us to get away. But then the osprey says no, because um, you have to leave now. You have to take your canoes out and paddle as far as you can into the lake because just the howl of the kukwas will kill you. So the villagers do as they're told and uh, they paddle out and they also plug up their ears with tallow so they can avoid the howl. However, after seven days, they're not sure whether the kukwas have come and left or not, um, but they can't take out the tallow because if they hear the howl, they'll die. So Oskun, liver, takes the lead and kind of slowly removes tallow um, a little bit by little bit until he hears a faint howl um, and is able to tell that the kukwas are leaving. And so then they return back to the village and the fish hawk comes and the, <laughs> I love this part. The fish hawk um, asks them, so what happened with the kukwas? And Oskun goes to him, obviously you are a great prophet, so you should know for yourself. And uh, it says, the fishhawk took the hint and left, <laughs> never to return to play prophet. And then Oskun, after this, is kind of recognized as a leader, and he goes on to have some myths and legends of his own, which are um, uh, some adventures. He's almost like the um, Odysseus of uh, the Micmac uh, mythology. The moral of this story really isn't very clear. Like, I guess, don't, don't play prophet, but I mean, the Osprey helped them. Uh, not really sure. Um, but it's because this this myth here is kind of a jumble of uh, different cultures myths. There's kind of an element of the Osprey being a little bit like Loki, where he's kind of playing tricks on the gull. And uh, so it's thought that this is kind of a mashup of uh, Native American legend and then also legends of the early Europeans who heard it and then translated it from the uh, Native Americans. So that's why it's kind of jumbled, but still a cool story. And I like the Kukwes, the ogres um, in it. My last story um, is an aboriginal legend, and I like this one a lot. Um, it's called Why Fishhawk Was Driven to the Sea. So one day, Fishhawk was at a watering hole, and he decided to fish. He chopped up bark of a bitterbark tree and threw it in the water. Now, the bitterbark tree it contains these um, toxic alkaloids, um, and it's been used by aboriginals to fish. They throw it in the water, and it'll um, kind of poison the fish and cause them to float up to the surface where they're really easy to gather. So he did that, threw it into the water, and then he went to sleep underneath a tree waiting for the fish to float up. A pheasant came by and sees the fish floating and takes them, makes camp, and then cooks them up and eats them. The fish hop awakes and sees the pheasant eating all these fish and is uh, angry at the pheasant, um, saying, you know, those are, those are my fish. And the pheasant laughs and says, these fish can't be yours. You can't sleep and fish at the same time. Obviously, that pisses off the osprey, so that night he steals all the pheasant's fishing spears and hides them in a tree, and then he leaves laughing to himself that this pheasant will never find his spears. But the pheasant wakes um, and, you know, figures out what happened. His spears are gone. He pissed off the osprey, and then he follows the osprey's tracks to the tree, climbs up it, gets his spears, and fishes again. And Osprey is sitting up in a tree, kind of laughing to himself, <laughs> I really got that pheasant, when he sees the pheasant back at his camp eating fish. 
So he's mad and steals the spears again that night after the pheasant has eaten his fill and felt fallen asleep. But this time, he puts the spears high up in a tree in the mountains. The pheasant wakes up, figures out what happened, and again follows the osprey's tracks. Uh, but the tracks lead him to a very tall tree, and the pheasant's lazy. So instead of climbing the tree, he goes to the mouth of the river that leads to the watering hole that the osprey lives by. And he causes a major flood, which flows down and washes all the fish away and washes the fish hawk away also. However, when he does this big flood, it washes all the tracks away that the osprey left. So the pheasant can't find the tree again where his spears are uh, stored. And to this day, you still see the pheasant hopping from branch to branch of trees looking for his fishing spears. So I love this story because I always love the um, Native American stories that kind of explain uh, bird behaviors, like why they do certain things. Um, it's always great the Native peoples are you know so observant of the animals in their environment. And I don't know if they're coming up with an explanation for um, the bird behavior or uh, like kind of a memory tool to remember if they see a bird behaving like this. It's, it's this bird because, uh, you know, of this legend. I want to note that this, uh, the pheasant mentioned in this story, it's a pheasant cocal, uh, which is a species of cuckoo uh, bird, actually. So definitely check out um, our episode right before this uh, about um, cuckoos to learn more about that. So that's the myths and legends about the osprey. Great bird, great fisherman. I definitely admire them a lot. I love to watch them, and I hope you guys do too. Thanks for listening, y'all. Our artwork um, by Jessica is great. Two juvenile ospreys kind of look similar to the young osprey that I'm looking at now in the nest. Well, all right, well, get out there, look at some ospreys, look at some birds, and let me know what you see. Let me know what you think of the episode. And as always... Stay dirty, my birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John Janusik, with our rotating panel of co-hosts. Thank you for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Our outro music is New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. And our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. Follow them on Instagram and check them out wherever you get your music. Graphic design by my beautiful fiance, Lauren McClure. Be sure to subscribe and rate Dirty Bird Podcasts. Send listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice memo of your birding experience to have it read on the show. Until next time, stay dirty, my birdies. <laughs> <laughs>